Anyway, well, let's pause for prayer here. We're going to look back at Psalm 51 again. Our God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the grace that we have of Christ. I pray tonight that uh, we'll have clarity as we look on Psalm 51. Pray that you'll give us wisdom, discernment as we look at this and then at Psalm 137. So we pray for your grace in this hour. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, you're not supposed to say bear with me because I'm having voice problems, but I got a cold. Somewhere in Arizona, it's hard to believe. How do you get a cold there? Well, I got cold at night. That's how you get it. <laughs> so uh, we got chilled out in the last... Next last day we were there, it rained, which I was surprised about. But, uh, you know, they seemed to like it. What city? Uh, they live in Surprise. Oh, yeah. I know where they Surprise. And he, uh, he's a police officer up in Scottsdale. So he drives about 45 minutes. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, he passes a lot of centers when he's driving. <laughs> he's for speeding all the time. <laughs> but so is he. Because he's gotten tickets before. <laughs> I thought he was going to get a church to grow. He would pull them over and say, I'll let you have the tickets if you come to the church. <laughs> well, that's a little bit pragmatic. I hope he wouldn't do that. <laughs> anyway, but it was a wonderful time. And, and my wife, whenever we see her granddaughters, it kind of makes makes her day. In fact, makes a few months. <laughs> so I'm um, you know, happy for that. And, you know, we love our grandchildren. I think that's normal. So you'd be a hardened seminary teacher if you didn't love them. <laughs> so, anyway, so I think we left off on page 26. We're going through the uh, penitential lament in Psalm 51. Remember, it's called penitential because it relates to repentance. So that's where the term comes from. And notice it's called a lament psalm. A lament because he's mourning about his sin. Now, the difference between laments at uh, non-Christian funerals and Christian funerals, or even the Old Testament religion, was really their relationship with God. So, with uh, with most laments in the Psalter, I think Psalm 88 is the one exception. That's the only one that doesn't have an expression of faith in it. This one definitely does. So he looks to God uh, for his forgiveness. In fact, uh, you know, in my seminary classes, it seems to me that from Genesis 3, with the fall, through the Old Testament period, there's three characteristics of God that are necessary for salvation. It seems that they needed to understand that they had God's judgment on them. That's foundational. So they had to see His holiness. Uh, also, I think they had to—I mean, I take it—they had to believe He was sovereign. Uh, this is in contrast to the idolatry. But I think also that we don't recognize it. No, I think starting with Genesis three, they had to believe that God made provision for sin. That's where the sacrificial system comes in. Obviously, it points to uh, a future redemption that's in Christ. But the Old Testament saints didn't always see it that clearly. I think Isaiah saw it clearly. You know those passages about the suffering servant, where he suffers for his people. That that seems to say Isaiah had it clear. It looks like David had some 
what I call nuggets, little little moments of that expectation. But before that, you read your Old Testament <coughs> carefully, and you don't see anything about Jesus in most of the earlier literature. Uh, you have to look real hard in later literature, but you will see that they do have messianic hopes. That's that's veiled in the early part of the Old Testament. But they did have to believe those things. You know, God is holy and judges sin. They believed he was sovereign. And I think with that goes, he makes provision for sin. If they don't believe he makes provision for sin, how can you be saved? I mean, it's, I mean, it's, I mean, I know I make it sound very simple, but it is simple. So those are the common denominators. I think aspects of that are fuller in the New Testament, but you still have those three common denominators. We just know more how it ties in with Christ. For us today, nobody can be saved apart from seeing Christ, seeing that uh, he did pay a price for sin, that uh, they're looking for him to identify him with his death. So they have to believe that the cross work satisfies the wrath of God. And in doing that, they see a provision for sin. So it, it is simple in some ways, and I may make it sound simpler, but isn't that my objective, to make it understandable? <laughs> so in Psalm 51, to me, this is one of the heights of revelation in the Old Testament because we see something about what it was like to be an Old Testament believer and to have fallen into deep sin and then repented. So what we were doing before we took our break, we were looking at the literary features found in Psalm 51. We had this introductory appeal to God in verse 1, the lament, that is the mourning. Then uh, on page 26, we have the prayer request. Uh, I don't think I got to the prayer request because I was trying to make a point about Psalm 51, verse 5, as it relates to the abortion issue. To me, uh, the Old Testament revelation reflects something significant about life. According to this passage, life began at conception. Uh, it's only people, moral agents, who are sinners in Scripture. Animals are not sinners. Uh, an animal may get put to death because he's so uh, rabid. You know, I, I have no doubt what would happen at SeaWorld. Under the Old Testament economy, whoever it was would be executed. It's an example for people. Uh, but I guess we live in a day when whales or, or sharks are more important than people they kill, which is more of an indictment on our culture, how bankrupt we are as far as moral standards go. So, anyway, you may be taking to your, your kids to SeaWorld. Just stay away from the sharks. <laughs> My kids love them. But, uh, you know, I, I thought it was pretty impressive myself. But it would be overwhelming to see somebody get killed like that. That would be overwhelming. So, I was trying to establish that David saw himself as a sinner from birth and conception. So with the conception, that reflects that he was a person. The issue in the abortion debate is, a, is personhood. When are they people? 
And uh, in our enlightened society, they may reject the Bible. Just look at some videos of those unborn babies. You can't see they're human. You know, you're just a deadbeat. Seriously, I don't know how you, I don't know how you can deny it. Well, you describe them as fetuses. That's why I resolved years back. I'm not calling them fetuses anymore. I want to be an in-your-face person. I call them unborn children. And I have had some women get mad at me. I've been accused of being a male chauvinist. Oh, that was my wife. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I said to her, that's biblical Christianity. She said, right. (laughs) Another class. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the B.C., Bill Coates Training School. We try to teach our (laughs) seminary wives how to be submissive. But I'll tell you, we're living in a different age. (laughs) So, anyway, that's that's why bogged down on that verse 5. Tonight we want to go through the actual prayer request. There's, that's in the plural. <coughs> so let's take our, uh, uh, our Bibles. Again, I'll be reading, my notes are in NASB. I'm reading from the NIV. But notice the initial prayer request in verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Notice, blot out my transgressions. It's in parallel with blot out or have mercy on me. Here he's being more specific what he wants done, to blot out his iniquities. Uh, So in verse 2 he says, Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. What's uh, interesting with the terms that are used here for sin. Notice in uh, verse 1 he says, blot out my transgressions. (coughs) That's one Hebrew word for sin. If you'll look down to uh, verse 4, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Uh, Sin means missing the mark. Iniquity reflects the issue of crookedness. And the uh, transgressions in verse 1, that uh, relates to a breach in relationship. You know, like uh, you'll see when you're raising your children, there's always breaches in relationships. They're more or less temporary. I mean, I think in most cases, but not always. But that's the idea that's involved here. There's a break in the relationship. With the other word, there's a crookedness. And with the last word, sin, it means missing the mark. Now, we need to understand that all three of these terms are used synonymously. And I understand that there's a build-up with the words for sin to stress his, uh, his total wickedness. He recognizes that uh, through the build-up of the synonyms, he's talking about the complete package with sin. So I don't think he's trying to stress the little nuances of differences. Uh, in some contexts, you can see those differences. But here I think he builds up the terms because he's trying to stress his complete sinfulness. Uh, you know, can anybody be saved if they don't think they're completely sinful? 
I doubt that, quite frankly. How can you be saved unless you know you're guilty? It's as simple as that. Now, when I witness the people, you know, I never go after specific sins. Now, they may bring them up, but we're looking at the general guilt, the general sin. When I was converted, I had so many sins, I couldn't think of them all. I was thinking of the ones that were most impacting my life. But I did say I was condemned. That's crucial here. David sees that he is a wicked, sinful man. And I think last week we also looked at that passage in Romans because I was trying to show to you that uh, this whole concept of total depravity, that includes the concept of total inability. That is, we are unable to please God. In Romans 8, 8, as a believer, David talks about how he can please God. But in verse 7, he's unable to please God. Well, friends, that's more than... The average American citizen will say they're totally depraved. Or uh, they might not say total. But they'll say they're depraved, they're sinful. Everybody I know will say that. Uh, except for... Uh, some people in a nursing home ministry I had a number of years back. We preached the gospel, and this uh, maturing woman said, you know, that was a great message. My friend needed it. <laughs> I'm not a sinner. She is. <laughs> well, she's a little senile. So that, that's a little different story. But for normal, run-of-the-mill people, to say I'm a sinner... I don't think sufficient enough. I think they got to recognize because of their sin, they are condemned, and they are unable to please God. But God in His mercy is going to save you. So I understand that God at that point regenerates a sinner when the gospel is presented. He quickens them. A result of being quickened is that uh, they repent and believe. I think... Uh, to me, it's, I take it that the regeneration comes first, and that's what produces repentance and faith. Um, I know in my case, it had to do that. <laughs> I knew too much of the gospel. Uh, I'd made professions of faith and lived like a devil. But why was it a cold Friday morning? Yeah, one may, moment I was cursing God, and the next, I threw myself on the mercy of Christ. Well, the lights came on. The reason why they came on is because of regeneration. It's the work of God. But God enables me to repent and believe. So I did exercise repentance and faith. But I think a proper understanding explains how we are the ones that do repent and believe. He gives us the life. We do repent and believe. Uh, some people think they conjure it up. Well, that may seem that way on the surface, but the reality of it is that uh, God had to do something to them, give them some type of life for them to see their need and to trust Christ. But I don't want to get into a discourse on my favorite flower, tulip. That's another occasion. In fact, let your pastor talk about it. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. I'm not surprised. I think he went to Detroit Baptist Seminary. <laughs> So, you know, that's gospel. I think here David, with these build-up of these words, sins, even reflects as a, as a saved man, 
that he has this residing wickedness that has not gone away. And it's expressed itself in his activity. So that's that's his prayer request. Notice it stresses his sinfulness, his great sinfulness. Also notice how when he goes through there, notice his personal accountability. He says, have mercy on me, O God, uh, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my in- my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So notice David's personal accountability. He did not have a no-fault view of uh, his sinfulness. He was the one at fault. So we can see his accountability, his sinfulness, but notice the request, it's, you know, have mercy on me. Blot out my iniquities. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So he's appealing to a sovereign God to have mercy on him, to blot out his iniquity. So he's very specific here. Well, that's the prayer request. It's it's profound prayer. Um, that's why Psalm 51 is one of my favorite passages in the Bible because I can identify with it. And uh, I think most of you can if you've read it. So that's the prayer request. But notice, he then runs his lament in verses 3 through 6. But notice, he picks up with the prayer request in verse 7. Now we can see that because he's using the imperative. In verse 1, have mercies and imperative. Uh, Blot out in verse 1 is also imperative. Verse 2, wash away. That's imperative. Cleanse me. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Now some people misunderstood the imperatives here. Um, you've probably heard on TV. I usually don't watch televangelists. To me, when I'm watching TV, it's usually for you know, the news or ESPN. Uh, not much else. But I have seen in my earlier days, I have seen some programs where you're supposed to demand something from Jesus. Well, whoever the speaker was was confusing imperatives in the Old Testament and New Testament. There is an imperative type use that is a pleading, a begging. It's an intense request. And that's all this is. So it's not a name it and claim it sort of Jesus or anything like that. He's not demanding it. He's requesting it. And so that is a category in Hebrew. It's called an imperative or request. Um, And here I think he's making a request. He's not the one. I mean, when we come to God, we're not in a position to be commanding him anything. We can appeal to him to forgive our sins and in our passion, we may use a, an imperative. But it's not because we think we can really demand something from God. Um, that uh, that would be a bogus faith. Remember Jim and Tammy? I mean, you know, it may be that he got the real deal while he was in prison. I read excerpts of a book one time while my wife was shopping, and I went into Borders, and maybe he did. I don't know. I don't know well enough. But... Uh, his wife obviously didn't have it. <laughs> so, 
you know, those are just one of those great charades. Almost all TV programs, it's about getting money. The, now, the church has offerings, but it's not about getting money. You use the money to extend the ministry. But, you know, any, any church that demands, uh, you know, you got to give, you know, 20, 30 percent or whatever. Uh, I think there is, is a biblical tithe. I mean, I think you're not doing it to gain salvation. I know Dr. Rice believed in real knowledge. Because remember, <laughs> you know, Gene Townsend preached the hard message and then he'd come in the next week and preach grace. Well, that was the redeeming part. But, uh, you know, I thank God for our current pastor, Dave Dorn. I've never heard the T word come out of him. Because I think people really think they're earning something by giving a tithe. And these televangelists come along and they recognize with these older people, they've been tithers all their lives. Now that they don't go to church that much, they'll collect it. So those things to me can never replace the local church. The local church is where God's plan and activity for this age is. And we do support it to extend ministry. Not to help the pastor get a million dollar house, you know, Mercedes Benz or whatever's out there. Uh, I think there's a should be a certain frugality that goes with the ministry and with the ministers. Um, so, but I I think the televangelists is completely different. They are the ones that were saying these commands. You name it and you claim it, and that to me was always a that, that's sinful, just sinful. So don't confuse this imperative here. It's not an imperative that's demanding from God. It's an imperative that's requesting from God. <coughs> so, going back to verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. The hyssop was a plant that they dipped in blood. In fact, in Leviticus, the priests would take and they'd uh, splash this on somebody or something. And it was called a cleansing ritual. David, being under the law, recognizes the cleansing ritual. And he's appealing to that. But the point of it is to be cleansed. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Well, that's that's great faith. Uh, so that seems pretty positive. And he's an Old Testament saint. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. So he's continuing his requesting mode. He's saying, I want to experience the joy and gladness which comes with being saved. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. And I might have mentioned this before, but we don't know of anything in the historical books where David Winston had his bones broken. This is uh, either some type of synecdoche, a part of the body stands for the whole, or what some will call metonymy. Uh, bones is associated with the person. So one's whole for the part or part for the whole. The other is an association term. So it could be that the bones are associated with the whole person. But, you know, I have not seen any legitimate commentator that sees that his bones were broken. 
Uh, there may be some out there. I could name a few, but I don't want to speculate. I don't want to insult any of your intelligence either. So notice his next prayer request. He continues, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Notice we go from cleansing to renewal. So there's two concepts involved here. He needs to be cleansed from sin, and he has, needs to have a spiritual renewal. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. This is one of the most interesting verses in the whole Old Testament. Because on the surface it may sound like you can lose your salvation. Uh, well, I went to an Armenian college. It was a Quaker school. I've had this verse used a number of times on me. Uh, mostly when I was in college, I was developing a Calvinistic approach after I became a Christian. What I mean by that is I believed in eternal security. That was a damnable doctrine at a Quaker school. So I had a girlfriend. Her pastor met with me to try to prove to me that you can lose your salvation. This is the verse that he went to. Oh, I wish I would have known back then what I know today. I was just a psychology major, a Freudian psychology major. I had no way of responding to him. So I looked like a real idiot and a fool. But friends, you know what I think the verse is really pointing to? <clears throat> Let's flip back to the historical books. It's Second uh, Samuel. Second Samuel twelve. That was chapter 12. Maybe it's chapter 11. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I'm wrong on the reference. This is the context. Remember when the Spirit comes upon David? That's probably 1 Samuel. Um, First Samuel... Yeah, go back to 1 Samuel 16. Now, David sins in 2 Samuel 12. But this is the passage where the Spirit comes on him. Look at 1 Samuel 16. Look at verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Now, most commentators recognize David was saved before this. He was saved when he was the author of guarding his, his father's sheep. 
he recounts his faith in some of the Psalms. So it looks by, like his faith goes back much earlier. And uh, this anointing is what's called a theocratic anointing, where the Spirit of God comes on the King of Israel, irrespective of whether he's saved or not. It's, it was his holy nation. So you have this anointing of the Spirit to help him do the job as king. Now what's interesting, look at the next verse. Saul was king. He's, he's lost the throne in 1 Samuel 15. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now that evil spirit, I think there's over 20 different interpretations of it. Uh, I'm not sure uh, the way I understand it. God may have used a demon. God's using the demon uh, to torment uh, Saul. But the key is, is he's lost the spirit. What's interesting, if we compare this passage with Judges 13 through 16 with Samson, the spirit comes on him four different times, and then he loses it. Now, no matter what theology you have, Arminian, Calvinist, nobody has the Spirit of God coming on somebody four different times. The Arminian view is you lose them once. <laughs> and so the fact that the Spirit's coming on Samson, it's for a special purpose of defeating some type of Philistine, some type of battle. Uh, he should have taken that job on and gone after his, his uh, female interest. That might have been the best thing to do, but he didn't. Blinded by love. <laughs> well, that, that creates a nuance for everybody's theology. However, friends, uh, I went to Grace Seminary, and one of the popular views taught there is that there was what they called a theocratic anointing. It's anointing from God to operate as a leader in Israel. That could be lost. Saul loses it in verse 14, but in verse 13, it comes on David. So when David's writing Psalm 51, what do you think I think he's thinking about? He remembers what happened with Saul. And he's saying, God, I want to be your king and rule like you meant me to rule. In keeping with that, don't take your spirit from me. Uh, now, the fact that I can point to verses gives us some credence, but when I was a Freudian psychology major, I had nothing to do. I think my girlfriend's parents wanted me to feel like I lost my salvation, so I'd leave her alone. I mean, that's what the real issue was. Well, that was one of the best moves of my life. <laughs> because then I ended up with the right girl. But, uh, you know, to me, uh, my Greek teacher, he put the heat on me. He had me read uh, Shank's book, Life in the Sun. Um, uh, there was just tremendous pressure when I was in college to become a Quaker. That chance. Uh, it's like a snowball making it through purgatory, and I don't even believe in purgatory. <laughs> but, uh, you know, today, I think there are better ways to explain that. And I would say Psalm 51, verse 11, is pointing back to this. He saw Saul loses anointing, and he got it. 
And he's saying, God, don't let me be like Saul. So, that would be my attempt to explain the verse. I'd like to run into that girlfriend's parents, though. I was set up. Well, that's the way I would take the verse. Notice that, once again, is keeping with the prayer. He's saying, don't let me lose my theocratic anointing. Then he goes on to restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit. That is a receptive spirit, a spirit that delights in doing your will. So this is really part of the renewal package. There's cleansing. There's renewal. By the way, I would say today, I don't think any believer can, should pray, do not cast me away from your presence. We're not kings. So I don't see there's any direct application. Some will want to say, well, perhaps it relates to service. Well, tangentially, I can see the point. But I think uh, I just tell people, you know, you can pray everything else here. I just want to pray verse 11 because it's an impossibility. You're praying a foolish prayer. You're casting your prayers before swine at that point. So he comes back in verse 12 with his plea, his prayer for restoration. And to be granted a, this willing spirit to sustain me. Really, this is the type of spirit that delights in obeying God. I think that's how the New Living Translation translates it, something like that. So it, that, if that's the translation I read it in. It was right on. So he has another set of prayer requests in verse 18. This is a little different. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. What's interesting, some commentators have seen how David goes through this plea for personal forgiveness, renewal. Now he's worried about Jerusalem. It seems strange to go from the personal to the national. Well, remember he was king. He's presiding over the nation of Israel. I would be disappointed if the king didn't have that type of concern. Now, if I recall, I think Bill Clinton used Psalm 51 when he was president. However, I, I don't think I'm not sure about his sincerity, but I'm not judging. I don't know. Uh, y'all can work that out. Uh, but I'll tell you, it worked. <laughs> so, uh, whatever. But I didn't hear him praying these last two verses. It seems to me like a king would go to that. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. David had taken Jerusalem and had been possessed by the Jebusites. He drove them out. He made that his capital. Now, the walls are not built yet. However, he stockpiling wood for the walls and the stones for it to be built. So he prays here, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Why? Because they haven't been built. Then when it's a secure stronghold, then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to light you, then bulls will be offered on your altar. So that's a prayer for for Jerusalem to be the capital and well protected 
so that they can offer sacrifices. If it's destroyed, then they can't offer the sacrifices. So that's his prayer request as a king. So uh, I think that's an inherent part of the psalm. I don't think a later editor adds it. To me, it's all explicable with David as king. That's uh, in, in Old Testament studies, that's what's called corporate solidarity. It's where the one represents the many. So there's a head. And by the way, you believe that too. Remember Genesis 3? Remember Romans 5? We sin in and with Adam. That's corporate solidarity. He represented us. But thank God for our second Adam, who represented for the many at the cross. People like that corporate solidarity. But that doesn't mean we went on the cross. It means he took our place on the cross. And uh, because your sin and my sins with him on the cross, he's taking care of it past, present, and future. All my sins. So I look back to the cross, but that's called corporate solidarity. Or a representative view. Uh, we were represented in Adam. He sinned. His his guilt is imputed to us. In Romans 5, that's, that imputed guilt is enough to damn us. The word condemnation is there. But this is, you know, this is, uh, you know, one strike and you're out. It's not like Catholic baseball where it's two strikes and you're out. You're, you're condemned on one. However, it's clear that I had a sin nature. That worked out from the time I was able to move around. In fact, I suspect I was crying because of my own selfishness. You know, when, when we saw our granddaughter last week, um, Bailey, and my children, they named their kids weird names. My daughter, Amy, Brianna. Where they got that from, I don't know. Then Father Missy named their oldest daughter, Marin. That's not in the family. Then there's Peyton, like Peyton Manning. <laughs> so I would have given her a middle name, Manning, myself. <laughs> uh, but she didn't get that. And then the last one's Bailey, B-A-Y-L-E-A. Weird. I mean, but, you know, we love them. They're our grandchildren. I mean, <laughs> what could they do? Have a grandson in the name of Bob the Fourth? That would be bad. <laughs> well, that's when I'm praying. <laughs> Although they're not praying. <laughs> but we're praying they got to work on them. They need to, like Bob says, you know, we're afraid they have another child because it might be a girl. I said, if you have a girl, just rejoice. Girls are good. But I wouldn't give up. I mean, this is, you know, this is four-strike baseball. Try again. <laughs> Try to strike some fire here. <laughs> well, that's more because of his wants and his dad's wants. But, you know, we, we're satisfied with our granddaughters. They're, you know, they're, I'd say they're good kids, but I believe they're totally depraved. But there are kids. How old are they? Let's see, Mary just turned seven. Yeah, she's in first grade. Peyton's five. She's in, I think, preschool. Because of their birthdays, they'll be a little bit older in the class, but I think we did that with Bob. 
he seemed smaller when he was a kid, so we held him back a year and then sent him to school. And I think in time it worked out pretty well. We should have done the same thing with Joshua. But he was so antsy. So he was driving my wife nuts. And, you know, he drove everybody else nuts after that. <laughs> but he doesn't have to worry about social skills in his position. <laughs> so, uh, but Bob's got better social skills. And, you know, you know, to me, when you look at it, our legacy is with our family. It's not about a big bank account. I don't have it. But it's about them raising their children and nurturing and admonition of the Lord, whether it be all boys or all girls. We rejoice with everyone that was born. So, anyway, it's neat. It's good. It's good to be a grandmother. My wife lives for a grandmothering, so I suspect that everybody else is like that too. So it was it was a good time. But I see the depravity that runs through their veins. Um, in fact, Bailey, she's what's she about? Fifteen months. She's really depraved. <laughs> I mean, she cries to get her way. She either, usually it's because she's insecure. She needs the security of her mother. So I recognize that that's that's a need. Her diaper's dirty. I mean, that's been crying. <laughs> I don't think that relates to depravity. That just relates to human nature. Uh, but they're they're selfish and they want their way. And I mean that's a reflection of their depravity, their sinful nature. But then there comes real gross, hardcore sin. And that's when they're telling mommy and daddy no, and they know they're saying no. I don't know that they always understand that, but there is a certain point where they do clearly know. And I think that's an expression of just clear disobedience. So there's three things that we're condemned for. We've got, uh, we were identified with Adam at the fall. We're born with the sin nature. And then we do actually sin. So we always act according to our strongest desire. And that's my sin nature. Um, So I don't believe people can... Yeah, I don't think before I was converted, I mean, I may have done good things, but it wasn't really for the right reasons. So that was still wicked. Uh, when you become a believer, then you can't be pleasing to God. But it, it does seem to me that why do we do sinful deeds? Well, because we have a sin nature. Because we were condemned at the fall. So we act according to our nature. And that is the sin nature. You know, people are offended by that. But you know, God does the same thing. God acts according to His nature. The difference is, is His is holy and right. Mine's sinful and at times corrupt. I, I mean, I think there's a difference between a believer and an unbeliever. I think believers may fall and stumble many times. But they do repent and look to Christ. Uh, that's to me a mark of a true believer. Uh, but it's not that we're sinless. Good night. I mean, I'm a sin. I mean, you get older and you can't do some of the things you did when you're younger. <laughs> but nevertheless, those thought processes—many of them, not all of them—some of those are still there. Uh, and so, you know, I still have those propensities, and so do you. But why do we improve as time goes along? Because of the Spirit of God. He indwells us. He moves us to greater love for holiness, greater love for God.
a greater desire to do His will. And if we're not moved that way, then we need to repent and uh, pray that God will give us, what's how David described it here? He said, a willing spirit to sustain me. That's how we should pray. So uh, this, this psalm was good for an Old Testament saint, but it's also good for New Testament saints. So that's the prayer request. We can see that. Now, are there any questions on that? There's a lot of theology here. That's why it's one of my favorite psalms to go through. Because it gives us the... You know, not very often do we get a full glimpse of what went on in the person's sanctification process. This gives us a glimpse of what David, the man after God's own heart, who fell horribly, what was going through his mind. And that does give me great hope. Um... You know, I haven't, I haven't been responsible for murdering anybody. Although I think in my heart, because I've hated my brother, I have murdered him, at least in my mind. Um, when we get to Psalm 137 and I plug in a few names, you'll know what I mean. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's wrong when it's because of my sinfulness. That's just bottom line. But who hasn't experienced road rage? I bet you had, hasn't <laughs> Sue, you haven't. <laughs> well, I would think so. Now I would think with Ron, that's a different Anybody story. <laughs> Anybody yeah. wants where I am? Go ahead. Really? Well, you're the type of driver I like to see. <laughs> but I do get angry on the road, and, you know, that's wrong. Oh, that's sin. Oh, I guess I could say when you do it, it's sin when it's me. It's because of my sanctification. I know what righteousness truly is. <laughs> Well, it's sinful. I mean, that's just the bottom line. And my wife will point it out. So, I mean, it's not as if she's deficient in her part. She's very efficient, a little too much. I just turn to her and say, get behind me, Satan. No, I don't say that. I did that once when we first got married. Never again. I have a question about the Psalms and relevant to David's life. What kind of a life did he lead? After, after this, uh, this song, I mean, Well, he, he looked like he, as far as walking in holiness, I think he did, but one of the problems is, is there were consequences from sin. The turmoil in the family. And that became a major stumbling block for him. So I think that was the big impediment. So, uh, but from what we can read in the historical books, he is a genuinely godly king. One of the most godly kings they had. Uh, Saul, you know, I don't think Saul was really a believer at all. Uh, that's why he lost the throne. Uh, you know, you look at uh, Solomon, you sure begin to wonder. The thing I always appealed to with Solomon, if he wrote Proverbs, the bulk of Proverbs, Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. He is an author of Scripture. Do we have any author of Scripture who is an unbeliever? I, I have never seen one. He would be the exception. So I would follow Jewish tradition. They say Ecclesiastes is kind of a swan song. At the end of his life, he turns back to God. You can see when you read Ecclesiastes, he's meandering this way and that way. Then he comes back and he talks about fearing God. 
enjoying life with a wife whom you love. I'm trying to fathom this with a thousand wives. <laughs> but <laughs> apparently there must have been one. So uh, when I look at that, he, he's, a little, he's a little bit more shaky to me. But David seems like he was the best of the best, although he did stumble greatly. But, you know, I think that helps us sometimes when we look at Christians who've fallen. Uh, you and I probably know some of the same people. And, uh, you know, I'm not prepared to tell them that they're Christians. In fact, I would tell most people who are turned away, you need to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith or not. However, I have seen, in one case, one outstanding example, somebody who's repented and is trying to live for Christ today. But most of the time, that's not the case. And, um, you know, I think we need to challenge them whether they're believers. What do we have to lose? They may die and go to hell because they prayed a sinner's prayer. But if your life doesn't match up to one degree or another, then you will die and go to hell. There's got to be some type of perseverance in love and good works. If you don't have it, then we need to pray. I think there needs to be at least uh, a struggle in a person's life. They may not be completely obedient, but there's got to be some type of struggle. And if there is, then I have some hope. So, uh, you know, I've I've seen many Christians fall into great and deep sin, but uh, very few repent. But a few do. So that's what we pray for. But even when we challenge them about their salvation, it's with the goal of bringing them to repentance. I think I've stated it before. We continue the Christian life just like we began it. We began the Christian life as repenters and believers. We repented of our sins. We trusted in Christ. The New Testament focuses on the present tense, believers. So we started it and we continue it. Now the word repenter is not used in the New Testament, but the concept's used. So I would say we continue the Christian life as repenters and believers, which if I'm a repenter, does mean I do sin still. So I've not done away with the idea that people still need to pray for forgiveness of sin after the believers. If you sin, you need to seek God's forgiveness. And I think if it's it's public sin, you need to make it right with others. that's often harder to do, but I do think there's a sense that we should be encouraging people to make themselves accountable to other people with that. So, to me, that's the key. It's repentance and faith. We start that way, we continue that way. And I think David reflects that. It just uh, crossed my mind that, you know, you, you just say, for example, you, you have road rage, and you, say, you recognize it's a problem, it's a sin. Say, forgive me, Lord. Go around the corner and then you're back into the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so is it really a true repentance or is it just, uh, you know? Well, that's hard to say. I mean, <laughs> when I do it, it's yeah. true. <laughs> now, what are you saying about yourself? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, what is true repentance? I mean, it's that's sometimes hard to say. Uh, I think over a process of time that we do see improvement. So, because I've gone through that, I, you know, I want to knock on wood. I'm better today than I was 10 years ago. 
However, it still happens. But I have to admit, if I ran around the corner or turned, made a curve or something, and it happens again, I, I mean, I've had that happen before. And at that point, I, I recognize what's happened. So I think there's a genuineness, but to me, uh, only the long course of life really shows. My setback sometimes, I don't take that as a, as a complete rejection. I think I look to Christ again, and I get back up and brush my pants off and move on. But we are all are going to do that. Uh, but there is a place where some people become hardened. That's what I would say is not genuine repentance. And they are bent. I don't mean that. That, to me, is, is a different case. So, But road rage is minor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what David did was serious. Yeah. He murdered somebody and he committed adultery. Yes, Chip? Oh, I, I was just going to... I would think we have to be careful to not think that any time we repeat after we have right. repented because, I mean, that we struggle. Right, right, right. And certain of us struggle with... Well, I think things. the issue is is we see the struggle. Yes. And that becomes instrumental here. So, anyway, I think I see David and he's... He would be the type of guy, I mean, he was a warrior. You know, sometimes we think that adultery just happened that one night, but, I mean, he was a man of war. He understood the ravages of war. I don't think that's the first time he thought lustfully. I think that happened many times. You know, you just don't commit adultery overnight. There's a pattern of thinking that's developed. The Bible doesn't tell us about David's pattern of thinking, but friends, from what we see in James, it is the thought process that incline us towards certain activity. So there's, there's something there. I mean, I've had some pastor friends fall into sin and lose their churches. And the most time, people want to be either hard on the pastor or soft on him. But I always say, he's been struggling for a while. And I suspect in most cases, it's been with the Internet. So, that's my humble opinion. But if you want to make yourself, um, you know, to me, if you have problems with that type of thing, there are programs to get. You know, we use Covenant Eye, $7.99 a month, but it tracks me everywhere I go. If you have an iPhone, you can have it on there for set at the same price. You get it on the computer, you can get it set up on your iPhone, and it's just one monthly charge. But it's a very good program. Now you got this, uh, what is it, 3X Church? They have a free one that's good. But uh, you know, my my wife, whenever I'm in Saipan, Africa, she's nowhere where I've been. And I have a couple other people who are lymphatic, and they're part of my accountability program. Um, but that's because I understand I'm still a sinner. And so uh, I was thinking, you know, we blocked down our TV more because of our grandchildren. At this point, we don't care, but Brianna's over our house quite a bit, and she's a little fast and furious with those controls. <coughs> so I really don't want her watching MTV, quite frankly. And I don't think you would either. 
but I, I do think in this age we need to be savvy. And uh, people who make a diet of pornography will look for a way of carrying it out. And there are more people who have the problem than we realize. Because I've preached in churches. I've had people talk to me. And uh, we're just, you know, fat, dumb, and happy there. But I, from what I understand, I think uh, Pastor Brown does do some stuff with that, which I admire him for doing that. A lot of times pastors don't want to do that. But if you, want to, if you believe in the purity of your people, you need to encourage them to make means available so that uh, they can have a fighting chance against sin. It doesn't mean all your thought processes are gone. But what you feast on is what's going to move you. So you do want to cut off that sort of thing. So to me, that's very important. And I know my wife, she does not understand the male temptation. Most women don't. I think, well, that shouldn't be a problem. Well, it shouldn't be. <laughs> but it is. Um, so, you know, to me, I'm very careful with that. I know in some cases, I don't know, did you see Fireproof? I like that scene where he takes his baseball bat to his internet. I think that reflects a real struggle with sin. But just like I told my wife, he could have got covenantized. <laughs> I mean, if I break the good computer. <laughs> so anyway, that's. But so I would say that I think David, he didn't have all the things we have, but he did struggle. But we do see some real fruit there. So did I answer your question? Yep. Maybe I said more I'm than sure I needed to. Well, I think we need to be open and honest about this stuff. You know, uh, the pastor is not an isolated creature here who's pontificating on life and thinking all is well. Well, they're just like you and I. So whether it be a seminary teacher, a pastor, we need to... I mean, I don't think all men have the same struggles. I think the majority of men do, though. Um, So that's what I would recommend highly. So... What price are you going to place? What price tag are you going to place on purity? Well, most people don't want to put a price tag on it, and that's part of the problem. <laughs> so, uh, no, I'm a firm believer in that, and I know uh, I've talked to the people coming out before. Um, I have literature seminary that I give to the guys and. Um, Whoever I was talking to up there said they have a number of our students who get covenant eyes. Well, that's because we pass out literature on it. So I, I think that's very important for preachers. They need to learn to fight the good fight of faith. And that starts in your heart. So, well, let's look at one other thing here so we can see what an expression <coughs> of trusting God is. Verse 17. Notice. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Friends, that's a great definition of trust and repentance. What does God look for? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That, to me, is a good definition of repentance, right there. So it's right in the Old Testament. And I think it carries over into the New Testament. Well, uh, 
that's what I have to say all about that. Uh, next week we'll look at verses 13 to 17. Then we'll move into Psalm 137. I, so it'll be interesting how you respond. I do take it that there's a place for praying and precatory prayers. I know we're supposed to be Christians and we don't pray those things. But just go home tonight and read Galatians 1. When somebody preaches another gospel, let him be a curse. That's an implication. Okay, well, we'll see you next week.